when you look at opportunities, you say, is this aligned with my larger purpose for being on this planet? And you have to get past the FOMO. I mean, you have to get past the fear of missing out. You're missing out on everything. You missed Apple's move. You missed uh, Instagram. You missed all kinds of things. You're going to miss all kinds of opportunities that, that happen in your lifetime. And you're going to have more things that you could do. You know, in the struggle, especially for people that I would call value creators, the people who can actually do things and get things done because they have that skill set, is that you're always going to be being asked to do things and participate in things. But you have limited time. You have limited energy. Time is the only finite, non-renewable resource you have. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Grace for Impact. On today's episode of the Impact Entrepreneur Show, I introduce you to my friend, Anthony Iannarino. Anthony is a highly respected international speaker, author, entrepreneur, and sales leader specializing in the complex business-to-business sale. He's also a founder and managing partner of two closely held family-owned businesses in the staffing industry, and he leads both entities in strategic planning while growing sales. Anthony is focused on helping professionals reach their full potential. In 2007, while growing the sales force of his second firm, he discovered a knack for coaching and realized that he could make enduring contributions to a company's sales culture. He began blogging about complex selling processes and gravitated toward B2B companies facing challenges in Salesforce management and performance. He's a trust builder who focuses on leading transformational conversations, those that create and sustain relationships of tremendous value. He's a natural mentor who brings the business acumen, situational knowledge, and experience to each engagement while laying out a solid foundation for future growth. And don't just take it from me. His work has been published in Success Magazine, Forbes Magazine, and many other well-known publications. As usual with my guests, Anthony provides a lot of information and value. And what we talk about on this show is applicable to everyone, every entrepreneur, regardless of whether you are a salesperson, regardless of you, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. What we talk about applies to you just as much as it applies to somebody who is an actual salesperson. I mean, everyone has what Anthony referred to as FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. And that might prevent us from actually chasing the right thing. Another thing we talk about on the show is how being detached from your desired result is actually a really powerful position to be in and may increase the likelihood of you actually achieving the result that you're seeking. So bust out your pen and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Uh, and on this show, we really are, are focused on going uh, 
kind of next level. We focus on uh, going beyond success, beyond failure. We talk about that stuff, but we really want to hone in on what drives you to do what you do and, and really impact our listeners in kind of a unique way. And before we get into it, you know, I always like to start out with the superhero question and, and you and I talked about the superhero question in our, in our initial interview before, uh, when, when the audio didn't work, but, um, I still would like you to, to share, you know, if, if it's still the same or regardless, uh, what your, if you could pick any superpower, what it would be and how you would use it. And then since I already kind of know what it is, I'd, and we know that superpowers don't actually exist, uh, other than in, in Hollywood, how can entrepreneurs take the essence of that superpower and apply it in their daily lives? If I remember my superpower correctly, it's the ability to not sleep, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's the one that I would like the most because uh, as good as I feel after a good night's sleep, I would still rather be working. I would still rather be being productive or I'd rather be with the people that I care about. So not having to sleep would be great. I would have more hours and I would use those hours. Yeah. So that's it. And I don't know. I'll argue, you know, I'll push back on superpowers are only in the movies or in comic books or on television. I think everybody has a superpower, even if they haven't recognized it yet. I mean, there's, there are things that you care about and you're better at and you work on harder than anybody else. And you can produce outsized results to that. Other people look superhuman, even though what one person can do, another person can do. Uh, for the most part, there's some some physical limitations to that. But what success someone can have, someone else can have. And it's it's maybe not in that same area, but they're capable of something superhuman, something that looks superhuman to the rest of us anyway. No, that, that's interesting. I had I not I had not really thought about that. It's a very interesting concept, actually, you know, that we are able to do things that are beyond what we thought we were capable of doing. So that, that is a good point that, that we do have superpowers. We, we might not be able to, you know, leap over the tallest building, but we can overcome some pretty amazing things. Absolutely. Like, actually I'll share a story with you because it, it just comes to mind. We, I did this interview with a guy named Brian Dickinson and he wrote a book called the blind descent. And this is a guy who he's one of like two or three people who has solo summited Mount Everest. And his solo summit wasn't actually a planned solo summit. He had a Sherpa. And when they got to the de- the, the death zone, he uh, his Sherpa got sick and he had to go down. Uh, and so Brian had to make a, a decision. He was 3,000 feet away from the, the summit and he had to decide, okay, am I going to go back down with my Sherpa or am I going to go it alone? So he, he decides to go it alone. And he gets up to the summit and... And he's, he's up there for like two hours, but then 10 yards into his descent, he goes blind. Wow. He gets, he gets snow blindness because I'm skipping a couple of things in the story, but basically the, the shield inside of his, his goggles broke and the UV rays were burning his cornea. So he had to descend Mount Everest blind. Mount Everest is, is dangerous enough when you can actually see, but overcoming that adversity and doing it successfully and, um, 
and, and, and living to tell the tale and all the ways that he had to dig deep and go beyond what he thought he was capable of. He, you know, he said that, that there were two things that saved his life. One was not overthinking the problem. Two was just keep moving. He just kept moving, even if it was slow. And actually the three, the third thing was he didn't let panic set in. And he had a lot of mindset training um, to help prevent panic from setting in in his military days. He was a Navy rescue swimmer. And he said, basically, during when they're when you're going through the qualification courses, they try to drown you every day. So that that uh, forces you to become mentally tough. You know, you, you run a lot of successful uh, businesses. You've got a lot of stuff going on. You've got the, the blog. You've got the podcast. You've got you're speaking, you've got your writing, you've got all of this stuff, which is, which is great. And, but why are you an entrepreneur? What was, what was the moment that kind of launched you on this trajectory? I, there's never in my world, not, there's never one moment. It's, it's a number of moments that sort of t- turn you a little bit in one direction. I wrote something once about a uh, 179 degree change. I mean, you don't need to do a 180. And you're you're going, you're moving, you're making progress. You need to just start shifting by degrees. And I, I think that's what happened to me. I recognized that there was greater value for me to create. I had people start asking me to help create that value. And I started to recognize that the impact that I wanted to make uh, was greater than what I was, was making at the time. And uh, it became more and more of a driving force in my life over the last 10 years. And you sort of go from one thing to the other. If you think about your Mount Everest story, and I've been to Mount Everest, I've been to base camp, but we drove up and from 17,000, you can see the other 12,000 feet. And I can tell you from looking at, there's no real reason to climb it. You're, you're at the altitude that planes fly 29,000 feet. It's insanely high and unbelievably difficult terrain. But when you, when you start to climb, you can see further and the the higher up you go, the further you can see. And so the entrepreneur's journey, I think you start with one idea, but then you you recognize that there's more opportunity and more opportunity and the ability to serve even more people at an even greater level. And so you just keep pursuing it. And, and as you do that, you can scale and add people to your team so you can reach even more people with even greater value. And I think that's what it was for me. It wasn't one thing. It started with... Um, now, I've always been a happy person and I'm pleased, but I'm never satisfied. And so 38, the dissatisfaction starts to grow. And at 40 years old, the dissatisfaction grows even greater. And uh, as you you realize what you're capable of, your full potential, and, and doing the meaningful work and the purposeful work that that matters in your life, you, you start to say, I, I need to do more and be more to do that. And I think that's what happens to entrepreneurs. You just see opportunities to make greater contributions and you chase them down. I, I think that that's a really important point. I, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. And, you know, when, as you are on this entrepreneurial journey, as you called it, and, and there's plenty of opportunity that, that presents itself along the way and shiny objects, and we have passion and then we have the opportunity and we might possess the skill set or we can go get the skill set. But how do we know that we're we're chasing the right thing? How 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 can entrepreneurs grow in in terms of becoming self aware enough that they can f- 
filter out the things that might be good opportunities, but not great opportunities? That's a great question. And it's a really hard question because each person has to answer this for themselves. You know, each of us has our own definition of what success means. And what success means for me doesn't mean that that's what success looks like for you. But I I would tell you, young entrepreneurs, particularly right now, live in this world where they see massive success from a Mark Zuckerberg and from people that start Instagram and Snapchat. And there's this idea that entrepreneurship is about building something and flipping it and getting rich quick. And that mm-hmm. does happen to a few people. And you can find some names of people who who dropped out of college and did that. And we hold them up. But it's really the halo effect. I mean, we're looking at people with bad behavior that had lucky breaks um, and and that didn't do everything right. And that's fine. But it's not a role model for an entrepreneur to say, I'm going to be a serial entrepreneur and create lots of businesses that get a little bit of money and a little bit of of capital and then do nothing after that. That's not what entrepreneurship is. It's not starting things and not finishing things. Mm -hmm. So, So the thing I would say, you know, the challenge here is what do you love to do? What's going to make your life meaningful? What's going to give back? and allow you to live your purpose. And, you know, if you ask people the question, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? The what would you be doing is, is if they're not already doing what they should be doing, that that's what they should be doing. And so when you ask somebody, what would you be doing? They go, I can't imagine doing anything but this. This is what I love. It, it's not to find an idea that you think is going to make you money and going to make you rich and 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 be an easy way for you to flip a business. I mean, entrepreneurship's about starting something that lasts beyond you and that that creates value in a marketplace. And you have to think of it, you're you're starting a business. Do you want to run a business? And I think a lot of young entrepreneurs don't don't yet recognize find something where you can make a contribution, where you can make a difference, and where you're going to love and bring your 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 best self and all your passion to that one thing. And then when you go all in and you bring your passion to that one thing, your odds of succeeding are far greater. I mean, most businesses in the United States don't make it a year. Um, I don't know what the stats are on five years and 10 years, but the numbers are miserable. It's difficult to build a sustainable business. So what are you doing? Are you trying to do, you know, a quick shot, uh, rob a bank kind of money? I go from nothing to a millionaire and there's nothing behind me. That's not what you're here to do. You're here to do something bigger than that. And your show's called Impact. I mean, you're here to make an impact, a positive right. impact. Mm-hmm. Do something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you know, you when you when you said the the phrase "your one thing" a couple of different times, and it reminded me of um, that movie City Slickers with Billy Crystal. Yeah, and I remember Curly, the cowboy. You know, the the ranch uh, cowboy. He's like a pseudo philosopher, also in the movie, and yeah. he's. He's out uh, with Billy Crystal. They're doing this cattle run, and Billy Crystal's like all bummed out and and uh, you know trying trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life, which is one of the reasons why they went to this uh, this ranch in the first place. And Curly looks at him and he says something to the effect of, "What's your one thing? You know, you got to figure out what your one thing is and go do that." You know, and it, it's it's very true, and it's very hard, I think. For for entrepreneurs or or people in general to choose one thing because we're we have like we're just overwhelmed with information and opportunity 
And I think it comes down to really, like you said, figuring out and asking yourself what's important to you and what it is that you want to have, what impact it is that you want to have in the world. And Amy Cosper, the, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, told me, we were talking about an article that she wrote about the dangers of building a business without a soul, you know, and she, I mean, she's calling it out right now. I mean, like in her, in, at, at entrepreneur, she's calling a lot of businesses out uh, in terms of, you know, trying to build these unicorn companies that make themselves look really great and um, create as minimal value as possible. So, and then, and then exit as quickly as possible and, you know, leave their customers and clients in, in, in the wind, you know, and, it's a very dangerous proposition. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, especially the younger generation of entrepreneurs are looking at these unicorn companies and, and wanting to start wanting to be the next Instagram and, and be, you know, sell, sell a, um, a company after running it for 18 months for a billion dollars or whatever, but it's just a facade. You know, you're, you're only getting that Instagram effect. You're not seeing all of the, the challenges, the, the uh the how an uh, how a business actually runs i mean you you running a business as you know as i know is tremendously difficult and challenging and all that we saw and heard about in the news was the the 18 months but we didn't see maybe the the 2 years that went behind that led up to that 18 months right no and you know i think that how how you make this decision is when you look at opportunities, you say, is this aligned with my larger purpose for being on this planet? And you have to get past the FOMO. I mean, you have to get past the fear of missing out. You're missing out on everything. You missed Apple's move. You missed uh, Instagram. You missed all kinds of things. You're going to miss all kinds of opportunities that, that happen in your lifetime. And you're going to have more things that you could do. You know, in the struggle, especially for people that I would call value creators, the people who can actually do things and get things done because they have that skill set, is that you're always going to be being asked to do things and participate in things. But you have limited time. You have limited energy. Time is the only finite, non-renewable resource you have. You, you have what you have. You don't know how much that is, but you know you're not getting any more of it. So you have to look at everything with a, a, a discernment to say, is this going to move me closer to what I'm supposed to be doing and my purpose? Is this what I want to live for, for some period of my life? And if it's not, then you have to get past the fear of missing out and just accept it. There's a lot of things you're going to miss out on. And there's a lot of things that you're going to be offered that you could, you could do good work and you could make a difference, but is it the right difference for you to make? Is it going to help you make your impact, your personal impact? Mm -hmm. You talked a, a little bit about how everybody's success is, a definition of success is, is different and they have to tackle these questions individually and, and analyze them on a one-on-one on -one basis. But what is your definition of success? What does success look like for, for Anthony? Success is, is happiness and freedom. And, you know, I've, I've had that my whole life. I've always been happy and I've always been, been free, but my, my mission and what brings me meaning and what gives my life purpose is helping other people transform. And th that's what I'm here to do. And that's when I'm at my very best. And that's when I'm making the contribution that I'm here to make. And that's why I'm happy. And it's why I have the freedom because I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And was that something that just kind of 
came naturally to you or was it something that you you kind of learned through osmosis of being around like-minded people or people that lived that way? I, I mean, maybe we can flow this question, that question into mentorship. You know, can you tell us a story about a, a mentor who's maybe helped shape your life and your, your outlook and in, in the sense that being happy and, and wanting freedom, but also really wanting to transform people. I've, I've had a number of mentors. One, one I wrote about in the Sunday newsletter was uh, a law school professor I had who just passed away uh, a couple months ago. And his name was Mike Distelhorse. And in law school, I was uh, very political. It was a very political time. And in law school, it's just a political environment to begin with. I mean, constitutional law, you're dividing people into uh, different camps, depending on whether something is perceived to be conservative or liberal. And I was wrapped up in politics, the politics of the time in my 30s. And Mike pulled me aside once where we were having a conversation and said, you know, listen, you get wrapped up in stuff that you can do nothing about. And you're spending a lot of time and energy in an area where I don't think you're getting the the same return for your investment of time and energy. Your your job isn't to to deal with all this political stuff. Your job is to just outrun the bastards and take care of you and your family the way that you want to. And it took a while for that to sink in. And then I thought, you know what? He's right. There really there's a lot of things that you can't do anything about. I can't do anything about the the political situation in the United States. I can't do anything about the larger economy in the United States. I mean, I could if I decided I wanted to get into that world and be a politician, but having met politicians, they're not the kind of people that you want to spend a lot of time with. So, yeah. you know, the 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 nudge there was to say, are you really doing what you're supposed to be doing? Are you really putting your energy where it belongs? And the answer was no. And just letting go of that gave me the freedom to bring other things that were more valuable and useful into my life. And and that's what a good mentor can do for you. They can help you see your blind spots and mm-hmm. help direct you towards what are you supposed to be doing and make you think that through. Yeah, no, I think that that help, helping that right there, the blind spot. Uh, the ability to see the blind spot is so critical and such an important thing. And and that you find a mentor and you have a mentor and you've built uh, a trust and rapport with that mentor where they're able to look at you and say, Anthony, this is this. You got to stop doing this because it's it's sending you down the wrong path. You're not being who I know you to be, and you're not going to realize your potential if you continue to do this. And I loved, I love the the concept of your job is to outrun the bastards and take care of your family. Yeah, he knew that. And you know what? It's it's not a one-time process either. I'm I'm 48 years old now and um I've got more mentors now and you know I've I still have more blind spots and you you continue to grow as long as you're open to the process of having somebody there who can challenge you then you continue to grow and you start to discover new blind spots and you can you can make course corrections. I had a, uh, a a mentor who is a Zen master, and I was explaining to him a, a difficult negotiation that I was in, and it, it didn't end well. We decided not to do business together, which was fine, but it was very adversarial, and I was being attacked, and I was sort of attached to an outcome, and I was talking to the Zen master, and I, I basically said, and I felt like I was being bullied. And I, when I'm bullied like this, I, I I feel like I have to push back because I was really attached to trying to get something done in this conversation. 
And it was polite, but it was adversarial. And he said, um, are you asking me a question or are you just telling me a story? And I said, <laughs> I, I don't really know. I said, I just felt like I needed to share it with you. And he said, you're not going to like what I say to you. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm, I'm perfectly capable of taking whatever you want to say. And he said, you're worried about his inner bully and you, his inner asshole. And you need to start thinking about your inner bully and your inner asshole. <laughs> and, and I said, well, okay. I didn't like that very much, but I, I said, listen, I know the, the asshole part, but I don't really know the voice of the bully. I'm not a bully. And, and he said, ask the people that love you and care about you, whether or not you have a propensity to be a bully in certain situations. And, uh, and, and just let me know what you find out. And I thought, well, nobody's going to say that about me. So I went to my wife and I said, uh, this is what, you know, Roshi told me. And she goes, oh yeah, when you think you're just being an asshole, you're really being a bully. And I'll be sure to point it out to you every time you do it, which has been super helpful in our relationship, as you might imagine, yeah. having her remind me. But it's a blind spot. And, and you know, we're both, we, we were both in that, that adversarial state of mind, you know, and it, it's a choice to, to en engage in that. Or I could have decided that I wasn't going to be adversarial and I didn't need to protect what I was trying to protect in that negotiation. And I could have had a different conversation had I chosen a different voice to begin with. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, even at, at whatever age you are, you still have these blind spots. You still have areas of improvement that a mentor can look at and have a conversation with you to bring this to light so you can start changing. And you know, I went back to Roshi and said, I'm going to really work on not having that voice. And he said, no, because when you, when you suppress any part of you, it shows up in more horrible ways. What you have to understand is that that voice serves you when you're protecting other people and you need it for certain situations. And for others, you need to make other choices. So I went, well, of course, that would be what a Zen master would tell you, because how do you, how do you tell somebody not to do something and to do it at the same time? Well, that's Zen. I mean, that, that, that's it. Is there's mm -hmm. is the the two sides of it? Interesting. You know, I I'd like to talk a little bit about like attachment and attachment to outcomes and 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 how to to handle that, especially when they don't go your way. Because I think that we we all have like a, an end in mind with our goals. Let Let's just talk about like a, whether it's in sales or you're pitching uh, an idea to a venture capital person or whatever. And you've got, you know, in your, in your core, you know, that your solution is the best going to give that client, that customer, the best result. And, and so you have this great presentation and whatever, and you're so emotionally attached to the, to this outcome because you know, it's going to be the best thing for the client. And maybe you need the deal also, but, but it doesn't happen. How how do you how do you how do, how can somebody how can somebody overcome that? What what kind of mindset tricks or or uh, skills can they develop to go into that situation with a sense of detachment as opposed to attachment? Well, I I would tell you that you're you're more powerful in a sales situation if you know your outcome, but you're detached from how you think you get there. And, and what I mean by that is I have my idea. I have my concept of how the sales call is going to go. And when it doesn't go that way, I feel like this is the best way for me to get there. I have to be detached enough for them from the process to decide there are lots of other ways for me to get there. So I, I think that what I would recommend if you're pitching 
have an idea of what the outcome is, whether it's an investment, whether it's a, a deal, whether it's you know the next step, whatever it is, but be looser in the process about what they need to say yes. And I think that's the first thing. But the second thing is, is there's just a choice. You know, selling or pitching is is, is not boxing. You're not going to be Floyd Mayweather and be 40 and 0 and having never lost, you know, at 38 years old or however, however old Floyd is. It's a lot more like the MMA and and you might be Conor McGregor. You know, you're you're undefeated until you're defeated and and mm-hmm. and that happens. So I would tell you there's a choice that we make when we go into any endeavor and the choice is to say I have to have this now or I'm playing the long game. So you can lose and still win if you decide to reset the clock and say, I don't need to win today. I need to win. Yeah. And if I'm if it's worth pursuing this deal, then it's worth not giving up on and changing my approach and finding help and coming up with a new strategy and and trying to to find some way to reframe it so that it might work and to stick with it. A lot of people have lost on the first round only to succeed at far greater levels later on. And so it's just what game are you playing? Are you playing for now? Or are you playing the long game? Because it really is something that's purposeful and meaningful and, and mission for you. Yeah, that, that is, um, that is truth right there. I mean, we, we are in the long game and we are going to have clients tell us no, um, but that doesn't mean it's a no forever. It may mean you need to go reframe the way that you approached it and, and stay in touch and nurture that relationship. And it reminded me of an article that you wrote recently. And I, and I think that every entrepreneur needs to subscribe to your podcast and your, your blog, because what they, what they may not realize when they, when they, when they look at sales blog, the sales blog.com, like, Oh, this is just for salespeople. Well, guess what? You are a salesperson, Mr. Entrepreneur. Like you might have a, a, team of actual salespeople, but we're all selling. I mean, like I, I'm a big believer in that in Daniel Pink's book to sell as human, we're all selling all the time. And, and I think that the, the information that you put out on a regular basis, um, is applicable to everyone, regardless of whether you are actually in the, in a sales role. I mean, you could be a parent and, and take some of the the principles that you write about and apply them in how you uh, relate to your children and try to get them to do things. But one of the article I was thinking about as you were talking about, you know, I need to win, but I don't need to win today is, is why fast is slow. I thought that was a, such a great article. And one of the things I love about your approach to all of the stuff that you're writing is it's kind of old school a little bit. Like I think it, it, it's, it's new and it's, it's old at the same time because uh, does that make sense? Yeah. And I'll tell you why it, I, I think I get that is because it, it's principle based. I mean, yeah, and, 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 yeah, and I, I tend to focus on deeper truths and bigger principles. And, and sometimes it feels like that leaves out the here and now. And, uh, I, I do think that there's a lot of the here and now here, but it's all built on longer term principles. And I, this one, why fast is slow is is really about in in human relationships rushing past what the other person needs tends to make it easier for them to say no or to take a lot longer to do it because they need a lot more reassurance and in sales when we want something and we want to make a deal now we're pushing through our process to to try to go fast and 
if if that serves the other person, that's fine, and you can end up with a yes. But most of the time, human relationships are built on caring and trust and confidence in the in other other person that you're buying from, and the depth of the relationship and how much I believe you can create value and. Do I think you're going to pass the foxhole test? I mean, when the bullets start flying, are you going to be here in the foxhole with me fighting that fight? Or did you sell something to me and and walk out the door? So there's all these judgments being made. And it takes time. And almost the slower you go, the more time you take making sure that somebody has what they need, then the faster deals actually go. So if you just think about slowing down and doing what you need to give the other person what they need to feel comfortable things go a lot faster. That, that I think today, especially in, at, at, at the pace of business today, that, that we think, we feel how, how fast things are moving. But it's not about the relationship, which what, you're talk, which, which what you talk about right now and, and in your article is, is all about building that relationship. And that relationship is going to be worth exponentially more than that one transaction. Yes. And I, I think that there's really two, there's really going to be two business strategies. There may al- This may already be true and the middle is going to get to be a very difficult place. You're either very transactional and, and what you're selling is enough of a commodity that the caring and the high touch and the outcomes don't matter very much. Or you're going to be super relational is what I call it. You're going to be what I would call level four value, which is very strategic, high touch, high caring, deep relationship. And if if you're that, you, you're going to have a market that wants that from you and is willing to pay a premium to have that instead of having the transactional approach. And you know, the thing about scale, and I know on, on a, an entrepreneurial podcast like this, everybody wants to talk about scaling up. The thing about scale is it's it's a dis- diminishment of quality. You know, you you don't serve eighty billion hamburgers and have those all be an exceptionally great experience for right. the person that bought it. I mean, and and that's a fact. And Walmart does not care about the experience, or their stores wouldn't be a warehouse. You know, poorly lit. You know, poorly stocked in the way of uh, the ease of finding what you want. Because that's not why you're there. You're there because it's just a transaction for you. And you look at businesses like Amazon, it's strictly a transaction. That's it. Mm-hmm. You can get a mm-hmm. book. It's delivered to you. It's the same book. And you, you maybe you don't care that much about that. But I used to have a bookseller whose business uh, unfortunately went under. But having somebody who was deep caring, deep relationship, they would find books for me when I wasn't looking for a book and and tell me they found something rare that I would want, um, you know, like a, a second edition of a, a John Locke treatise from, you know, f- 300 years old. They would find that kind of stuff and say, we found this. We don't know if you want it, but we were thinking of you. That's a different bookseller that, than Amazon. But there are certain things that people want to be commoditized. But there are a lot of things that we don't. And in a world where everything is automated and we try to automate relationships... There's going to be, uh, I think, a, a, f- a flood of people trying to find people who actually care enough to give them what they want, and they're going to be willing to pay a premium for it. Absolutely. I mean, that that we had a bookseller uh, similar, you know, because would always uh, bring up these interesting books that he felt uh, we might like, uh, and it was it was such a high touch thing. I mean, 
every time we walked in there, oh, you, this is a book that you know you're going to love too. You should get this one, you know. And and companies, since we talked about Amazon, have tried to replace that. I mean, with with artificial intelligence, like other people who bought this also bought that, you know. And and it just is not the same. And it, and it's and it, it is something that you we experience more and more every day in all of the transactions that we make, especially when it comes down to the things that are commoditized. But situations, I think that, I think that sales, I think that having a, uh, a quality sales team and, and somebody who a, a client can call and relate to and communicate a, a problem they're having is going to be even more valuable going forward for the precise reason that you just said, I mean, because you've shown that care, that depth of relationship, you've, you're going to pass the foxhole test versus, you know, clients are going to get tired of the, you know, automated transaction with when they, you know, they buy something and then it shows up in a box and there's no human relationship in between. I mean, just think about how we automated the, the telephone answering at most companies. Yeah. You know, the experience did not get better for the customer it got better for the company because we reduced the cost of answering the calls, but we, we lost the human connection. And, and mm-hmm. over time, what that says is I, I care more about reducing the cost than, than I do about our relationship. I think that uh, one of the reasons why, uh, why the industry at large is doing this and why we kind of do this on an individual basis also ties back into another great article that you, that you wrote. Um, about self-orientation, about about ways to recognize that you're being self-oriented and not other-oriented, not service-oriented. Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, it's it, it's really an interesting thing, and it goes back to the the why fast is slow. If I'm worried about me and my outcome, then I make it harder for you to say yes to me because I want to work with somebody who's worried about helping me get my outcome. And so focusing on what I need, focusing on the money that I want to make, focusing on the business outcomes that I have to achieve. I mean, if you start to betray those things, well, the, the, your actions and your words will betray those, uh, those outcomes to a prospective client. The more self-oriented you are, the less other-oriented you are. And we want to work with people that care about us and who are going to make sure that they put our needs in front of their own. In this is this this paradox. The more other-oriented you are, the greater the benefits accrue to you and the faster you get the things that you want. I mean, I didn't, I didn't create this and everybody you know, who's listening to this hopefully has listened to enough Zig Ziglar to know that you can have anything you want if you just help enough other people get what they want. So yeah. it, you can have more, but the more other-oriented you are and the more value you try to create for a greater number of people the the more good things accrue to you from having done so. So you you have to start thinking about having an other orientation instead of a self-orientation. And you have to look for signs that you are self-oriented. I mean, even, you know, I've heard people say in a negotiation, you know, we really need a win-win deal. And, and the customer isn't thinking about your win. They're thinking about their win. You know, and, yeah. and, and the right answer is normally something that sounds more like, listen, I'm asking you to make this investment level, not because I'm trying to fleece you of your money, but because a lesser investment won't get you the result that you need. 
And I want to make sure that this result is the right result for you and that we make the investment to get that together. And and that's not that's not me saying I have to have my win too. And we say things like, well, we need to be profitable. Uh, the, the Anything that starts to talk about you and what you need starts to take away from the right conversation to have, which is what's the right thing for them to do to get what they need. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. I love that language, how you kind of, uh, the, the win-win language that you, that you just used that addresses that, that need without sacrificing the, the value that the client, that the customer is seeking. I think that that, it all comes down to, to language and, and language is a result of how your mindset is. So when people are, uh, building out their presentations or, or their sales pitches or whatever it might be, what are some ways that they can test them to make sure that they are not self-oriented. Take off uh, the the picture of your building. Take off your addresses. Take off an organizational chart that talks about all of uh, your leadership team and their background uh, and, and start focusing on wh- what's the current state for the person that you're talking to. What's the future state that they need? And then what, what's the right way to get there? What's that investment going to cost? And, and I think so much of what we do, I mean, and I understand if this is an entrepreneur who's pitching for VC money, you're going to need to talk about your team because that's really the investment they're making is whether or not they believe in the team. But I wouldn't start there. I'd start with what's the current state and what's the case for a future state? Why should we change right now? What's the urgency to change? What's going to compel people to take action on this? And that's the more interesting conversation to have with customers. Why change now? Why should I yeah. do this right now? And the the part about, well, we've been in business for X number of years, and this is a list of our clients, that's all proof providing. That doesn't say anything about the case for change or that you understand my needs or that you want to help me get there. That's all about you trying to prove to me that I should buy from you. But first, mm-hmm. I have to decide that I really want to step onto this journey with somebody, you mm-hmm. or somebody else. And really, that, that's the mistake that we make when we present in the self-orientation is we think that it's about us and it's about the, the preference for us is going to be created by these proof providers that really just take away all of the most important conversational elements from, the, from that conversation. I think that stating the problem first, you know, like uh, whether it's a VC or whether you're actually pitching a potential customer, stating that, that problem where they're at now versus where they could be and how to bridge that gap, that, that is critical. And I, I, never, I had never thought about taking off, essentially stripping every presentation from having any information about yourself. But I think that that's brilliant because it, it really forces you to be completely oriented toward the other person. Yeah, it's especially interesting for entrepreneurs who may be listening to this because, because we can automate so many things 
a lot of, of young entrepreneurs and not so young entrepreneurs think that it should be automated because we can automate it and, and everybody wants to Uber everything. And, mm-hmm. and not everything is going to lend itself to being Ubered. But they think because we can count, it should be counted. Because we can automate a marketing message and put you into a funnel and send a message. And I'm not arguing that that's a bad idea. I'm just going to say that if you send me an automated message, it's spam. And if you send me a personal message, then it's nurturing. You know, And so there's a lot of things that we're trying to do with technology that don't lend themselves to technological solutions. I think that I think that that kind of plays into how we manage our our lives and our time as well. And I, I think that we we constantly feel like time is a scarce thing, which it kind of is, in, in it because we run on a twenty four hour clock, and unfortunately, we don't have the the power to uh, to not need sleep. But um, I think that it's a fallacy. To believe that you're too busy to to accomplish great things, and you cover this a little bit in your in your in the me management section of your blog, which is which is great, and and I'd love for you to share with us about the article you wrote about all that we can accomplish in one hour. I thought that that was was amazing and a, a perfect answer to the argument that I just don't have time to do this. We we have. We, we all have exactly the same amount of time. And the, the question is, the reason I talk about me management and not time management is because the clock relentlessly ticks away no matter what you're doing. You get to decide what you do between the ticks. That, that's the most important thing to understand. You get to make a decision. And we don't have time to spend another hour prospecting, but we do have time to spend an hour on the internet you know, looking at social media stuff. And we don't have time to pick up the phone and make five follow-up calls that we really need to make. But we do have time to go out onto LinkedIn into what is now a chat a chat box instead of an email and and mess around there. And, you know, it's really, you have exactly the time that you need to get done what you need to get done, provided you're willing to say no to distractions and diversions you know, in the in the small screen of infinite possibilities that we carry around in our our left hand, like it was attached, you know, there from birth. You you can be distracted by all of these things, but in one hour, you can produce tremendous results. One hour of prospecting could change your results. Just one hour, one hour of nurturing cold clients that you should be calling on because in the future you know they're going to have a source of dissatisfaction that you can resolve changes your results. One hour taking your team to lunch and deepening the relationship changes the nature of that relationship and gives you the ability to get more things done. So there's all these choices, but you do have to recognize if you don't have enough time, it's because you're saying yes to small things and no to big things. And so Mm -hmm. you have to know what are my big things. And then I have to say no to small things, even though it's interesting, even though it's a great diversion, even though I can create value. If it's not a big thing, you have to say no. I thought uh, one of the things that we talked about in our initial interview was that was really fascinating was how quickly you can you debunk the myth that I, I don't have time to write a book. You know, I think it was like if you wrote if you wrote a book if you wrote for thirty minutes every day or something something along those lines, you'd have a book written in ninety days or something. Yeah, you could write a book in ninety days easy. I I if. I mean, to do it, you have to make some decisions about what's important. And if, you know, if that's important to you to write a book, 
I, I talked to a lot of authors when I started writing and almost invariably they told me the same thing. I get up while everyone else is asleep and I start working very, very early in the morning, some as early as 3.30 in the morning. And, and it's because their brain is clean from having slept. And I've written, um, I think this Sunday will be the, my 2,500th post. So, you know, I've done wow. that minus 13 days in Tibet when I did go to Mount Everest. Um, I've written every single day. And it, you start to, it piles up. So it's 500 words. 500 words is not enough for a book. You need 60,000. But 500 words every day You've got you've got time to write 500 words if you decide that that's something important to you, and mm-hmm. and if there's some book that you're supposed to be writing, you know, and people say this, we say this to each other, like I've got a great book in me, write that book because we're waiting for it. I mean, that's the book you, that's what you're supposed to be doing is giving us that. That's part of what you're here for. But it's 500 words a day. You do that for a little over 90 days, and you've got a book. Yeah, no, I think uh, you know you are you're obviously very prolific. You've written in, you know, success. You've written for Forbes. You've, you've written for your own blog. Uh, but you're also getting ready to publish a book here soon in October, right? That's right. October 11th. October. What's it called? It's called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. It's going to be published by Portfolio. Okay. And what's, what, what are, what can, listeners and readers look forward to from that book? This book, you know, anybody who writes a book has a reason to write it. And I see a lot of people wondering, why can't I get the sales results that I want? Or if it's a sales manager, why can't I help these people get the sales results that they need and that we need? And sales leaders wondering, how do I find people that can do this job? And basically what I've done over the last decade was looked at what what are the attributes and skills that salespeople need to succeed now. And the book started out with the title 17 Elements, but the publisher hated that title. And I'm such a simple guy, there's 17 elements. So I wanted to call it 17 Elements and and use a periodic table as a sort of a metaphor. But the first nine are, are really personal behaviors and attributes. Are you self-disciplined enough? Do you know the art of me management so that you can do what you really need to do. And without that cornerstone, nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Do you have an optimistic attitude? I mean, do you believe in yourself? Do you believe that there's a way to succeed? Are you willing to take a no and recognize that it doesn't mean anything uh, and that you can carry on and make the next call? Do you care about helping other people get outcomes that they can't get without you? And and so there's, there's these attributes. There's There's nine of those. Determination, initiative communication or caring. There's all these these attributes that you can develop. You can develop the ability to be accountable for the promises that you make. All that first half is what makes you a person worth doing business. And then the second half are skills like prospecting and closing and storytelling, diagnosing, developing business acumen, leading change, and then leading others. So there's 17 elements and it's basically a, a diagnostic you can pick a chapter where you're struggling and you can go there and find the answers that you need to improve that area, um, even though you might want to improve all of them a little bit. Those are my favorite kind of books where you can actually jump in like anywhere in the book and and go to this particular challenge that you're facing and uh, and start there and not necessarily have to start from chapter one and all the way through the end. You know, I think thank you for writing it in that format. <laughs> I, I just hope that everyone reads chapter one first, because without self-discipline, without the me management, the rest of it's really tough. And if you yeah. get that part right, everything else comes easy. 
because you're willing to do the work. I want to go back to talking about adversity and how real quick and, and how to handle it because you have a really great story that uh, I don't want to I don't want to miss out on. And, and that's when you were you know you didn't start out doing all of this. You moved to L.A. and you were uh, fronting a rock band. And you were on a completely different path when something major cha- happened in your life and, and changed, you know, the direction that you were going. Can you tell us that story and, and how you overcame that and, and maybe what helped you overcome that? That's a, um, the, what helped me is a more interesting question. But the, the short version of the story is as a young kid, I grew up uh, being raised by a single mom and didn't really have a great vision of what was possible for me. And I found the one thing that looked like the best job in the world to me, which was fronting a rock band. I mean, that's the the whole sex and drugs and rock and roll. That all looked really good to a, a kid growing up in an apartment complex, being raised by a single mom and sharing a bedroom with his younger brother and his sister sharing a bedroom and all of us having one bathroom for five of us to get through every morning. Uh, at, at some point, about 17, I started that band and uh, we did really well. And by about 20, 21, I'd done everything I could do in Ohio. So I moved to Los Angeles where I got a job in in staffing because it was the family business in in Ohio and I knew how to do it. But I went there so that I could play music at night and, and work on that part of my career. And I had a um, I had a, a mentor, a manager who came in and recognized that I had the ability to sell. And he literally forced me into outside sales. But I was doing really, really well in Los Angeles. And I loved my life. I loved where I was. And walking up the steps to my apartment, um, right after my 25th birthday, I had a grand mal seizure. And I was, I, I actually, I wasn't taken to UCLA because I refused to ride in an ambulance. Uh, after having the seizure, I was disoriented and I didn't know really what had happened. But my neighbor took me to UCLA and the first couple doctors did a CAT scan and they found this giant mass on the back of the front right lobe of my brain and they said it's cancer and we're going to have to cut off the front right lobe of your brain, which is shocking when you're 25 and you are you don't drink and you don't smoke, you don't do drugs, you run five miles a day and you're a vegan. You're like, how would this happen to me when everybody else out here is going crazy? And uh, <laughs> I, I, I pushed back and I asked a question like, well, could it? Could it be not cancer? Could it be something else? And they said, yeah, it could be an arterial venous malformation, which is a big group of arteries and veins that grow into a knot. And uh, But it would be a really big one. And I said, well, before we decide to cut my brain off, maybe we take a look and see if it's something else. And they said, <laughs> yeah. we thought of that. We're going to do that in the morning. So they, they did a, a series of tests where they ran a tube through the femoral artery at, at the junction of your where your leg meets your body. And they squirt a dye into your veins so that they can see what's really there. And they found a giant uh, arterial venous malformation. And uh, I was very happy. But they were very, very bad salespeople. They were very anxious, too anxious to cut my head open. And their pitch was, listen, this is going to be great. Uh, There's going to be a big crowd of people watching. We're going to videotape the whole thing. We're going to use it for training. And again, it was very self-oriented. It was all the ways that it was going to help them. And at the time, I'm thinking, I could die from this, and you're worried about getting it on film. So uh, I I told them I needed to talk to my parents, and I went home to Columbus, and the very best guy in the world to remove an AVM is John Tu at the University of Cincinnati, uh, since retired, uh, just a a great surgeon, world-renowned. 
And I had that surgery and I came back to Columbus because I wasn't allowed to drive for two years after that surgery. But I had learned that I had other things that I could do. And of course, Nirvana and in the grunge movement killed the kind of music that I was playing. So that that sort of went away. And I found that my contribution was really in, in helping other people get results that they couldn't get without me. And that was selling. And that was going out and finding complicated problems that customers had and helping them. The adversity, I, I think, was, you know, I, I haven't really probably shared this story, but a lot of it was having to take uh, a very, very difficult drug called phenobarbital for an anticonvulsant afterwards and just being either very, very much in a zombie state or being very angry. And I think that was all both psychological and physiological. But it was coming to terms with that and then fi finding a way forward. And basically, I probably overreacted. I started reading a book a day and I went to my neurologist and said, you know, it feels like my brain is on fire. I'm reading. And he's like, nah, that's just that's just compensation. We cut a piece of your brain off and now you're worried about the rest of your brain. And uh, from there, I went to college and uh, I got uh, a dual major in political science and English literature and then law school and then Harvard Business School. So after that, I sort of stepped onto the path of whatever brain I had remaining, I was going to try to use and and try to do something to make a significant impact. Is that one of the reasons why you've become so passionate about mindset and like and brain science and I, brain I love brain science and I read a lot there but I'm 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 passionate about mindset because it's it's the difference between success and failure for most of us. It's not that you don't have the skill set or the toolkit or that you can't it's mostly about the beliefs that you have about what you deserve and what you're capable of and what difference you want to make. And people, I, I would tell you, it would be better for you to have the right mindset than to have the right skill set because you, you'll get the skills as you go along. But mm, if I you don't that. have the right mindset, even if you have the skills, you're never going to make the difference that you can make in the world. Mm -hmm. that, that, that is true. I, I heard it said a little bit differently. That you can have passion and you can have opportunity and you might not possess the skill set, but you can get the skill set. And a lot of people can succeed with just the passion. Mm -hmm. I mean, Absolutely. The, and if you just look at the music industry, there's countless examples of people with very, um, I'm going to go ahead and probably alienate some people. Like, uh, you know, I had Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin and young people today have Justin Bieber. And, you know, the, he's passionate He's a he's a worker. There's no doubt about it. But he's never going to write Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, that true, very true. Last question um, before we uh, let our subscribers know how they can connect with you. You've got all this going on. You've got a tremendous story, a lot of awesome things in front of you. But how will Anthony measure his life? Well, I know how I'm not, and I I know that m my banker isn't going to be standing at my gravesite because at that point I'm probably not very interesting to them anymore. Uh, I'm going to measure it on how I did making a difference for the people whose lives I touch. And if I'm fortunate enough to do that, to to have made a positive contribution and how I did with the three, the three children that I'm raising right now and, and giving them that mindset to go out and make a difference and to do good in the world. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for sharing uh, your time with us today. We really do appreciate it and value it. How can our subscribers 
connect with you and interact with you? Any way they want to. Start at thesalesblog.com. There's a bunch of buttons across the top. If you want to connect on LinkedIn, great. Twitter, whatever makes sense for you in your world. But thesalesblog.com, you're going to get uh, a pop-up banner that's going to ask you to subscribe to the newsletter. I recommend you do that. That's one of my favorite pieces of work every week that I produce. And uh, it goes to now 80,000 people. And it'll show up in your inbox on Sunday. And it will be something you can take and start working on on Monday. It's uh, totally actionable. I totally can confirm that, folks. And and I so subscribe to the blog and also go to the Anthony tab on there where he also um, has some great material such as the me management section and and other uh, very interesting places to start to learn more about mindset and positioning and all of these other great, amazing things that we've talked about today. So again, Anthony, thank you very much. We'll be sure to link to all of this stuff and more in our show notes. All right. Thanks, Mike. Great talking to you. A lot of what Anthony talked about is incredibly relevant in today's entrepreneurial and business environment. And at the same time, it's rooted in core principles that are really, truly timeless. When it comes to making changes along the entrepreneurial journey, Anthony reminded us that we don't need to make huge modifications. We need to start by shifting in degrees. Think about it as shifting 179 degrees as opposed to 180. Focusing on creating great value and starting something with the intention of finishing it and seeing it all the way through. And doing so while recognizing that your definition of success is going to be entirely different from someone else's. And you need to ask yourself, what is that one thing? What is the one thing that is going to make you feel like you've achieved success in life, in your business, in your relationships? And while you're on this path towards success, it's critical to find a mentor, a mentor who has the ability to spot your blind spots and help you focus on what you really need to be doing in order to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. We also need to have in the forefront of our minds the fact that for most of us, what we're doing, the game that we're playing, it's a long game. We need to win eventually, but we don't necessarily need to win today. We don't need to sacrifice the value that we're creating for our clients and our customers to satisfy our own self-orientation and need to win. And of course, that really requires us to be deliberate and intentional about how we're approaching everything in our daily activities, whether it's a sales pitch, building a relationship, trying to get your kids in bed, etc. We cover so much more in this episode and we will link to all the things that we talked about in the show notes. I'm incredibly grateful and humbled for you listening to the show today. I really would love it if you would go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, review, download, all of that jazz. It's so important to us because it keeps us high in the charts. And at the end of the day, I really want this podcast to have a tremendously positive impact in the lives of others and inspire people to take action, to become game changers in their own life as well as others' lives. So please go to iTunes, subscribe, download, rate, and review. You could also visit our website at www.theimpactentrepreneur.net and subscribe there for our blog and also uh, for the podcast to keep you alerted when new episodes are live on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Now go make an impact. Impact.